It's your host, Emmy. Welcome to another episode of Emmy's Insight. In this episode, it was my first not solo episode, and I was joined by one of Australia's greatest athletes, Tamsin Lewis Manu. She was a wonderful guest, and it was so great to have her on the podcast. So, without further ado, I'll just jump straight into it and play our episode together. I have left a little bit of the raw footage in just so you guys can get a gist of how wonderful Tamsin is. So, thank you so much to Tamsin for joining me and I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Hi Tamsin. Well, am I unmuted? No, start video. Oh, I can hear you now. Perfect. Hi, thank you so much for joining. Sorry, I'm a little bit starstruck, so sorry if I'm oh, a bit you're too nice. I'm just looking at myself and realized I haven't even looked in the mirror today. At oh. least my hair's on the brush. <laughs> That's okay, it's just audio, so <laughs> oh, awesome. That's easy. Hey, do you have like two seconds? I'm just gonna go grab a water. Yeah, no, that's all good. That's all good. Ah, uh, legend. So sorry I'm late. My, no, that's uh, all my good. My kindy took a bit longer. I'll be back in a sec. All good. Where are you based? Are you in Melbourne? No, I'm in Sydney. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, know, I know New South Wales pretty well. So my mum's from New South Wales. So yeah. Oh, nice. Where are you right now? I'm in Melbourne at the moment. Oh, okay. I'm a Melbourne girl, but I was living in Brisbane. And then, yeah, I've pretty much lived everywhere, but we're in Melbourne. How's like COVID over there right now? It's okay at the minute. We're allowed out the house, which was yeah. like last year. Last year was crazy. It was crazy. But yeah, you know, I feel more, I feel for the athletes. Like, so you do athletics. So like, yeah. it's, I feel more for the athletes. Like it's one of those times where it's just hard. I know. Especially for I, our elites. Yeah. I, I saw, did you see, um, you would have seen Liz Clay drop that 1284. Amazing. I was like, that's crazy. And I was like, it's just so unfortunate that it's happening. Like she's, doing so well mm-hmm. in this time because she should be hopefully running at an Olympics this year but yeah well fingers crossed it happens but it's it's kind of really hard to see it going ahead but hopefully that I mean everyone I've spoken to high up says that it is but I have no idea how it's yeah. going to happen and then the flip side of it is at least Liz is young enough to, to make another yeah. one there's, no, there's exactly. athletes like a Sinead Diver yeah who's a she's the one I feel the most sorry for yeah because she's like mid-40s right now isn't she? yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'd be her first Olympics, and she so deserves to go to an Olympics. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and then the thing that sucks when you're not in the sport, people only know if you peaked in that fourth year because mm-hmm. you could go to That's three more chances. You- yeah, mm-hmm. they don't care. Yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, removing it's only what you think that matters. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to get into that mindset as an athlete, but once you realize if you move yourself from it those sort of things are superficial when you go, I went to this or I did this or it's, it's pure. It's, it's that satisfaction that you need for yourself from all the hard work. And yeah. that's what you miss the most if you don't get to go to the Olympics that you deserve to go and you don't get to go. Yeah. And I guess an outside person, they care for five minutes and then they forget it's more what matters to like how you feel about yourself. Yeah. That matters. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. hundred percent agree. So please excuse the second intro. Here's what we recorded on the day. I hope you enjoy the rest. Welcome to another episode of Emmy's Insight. It's your host, Emmy, and today I am joined by one of Australia's greatest greatest athletes of all time, Tamsin Lewis-Manu. She is a three-time Olympian and 18-time national champion. I was having a look at um, some of your achievements before we started, and I was just like, I can't remember all of these. It was wild and it was also pretty wild how young you were when you started to be at that elite level so yeah so welcome Tamsin I'll 
ask you more about your achievements because you probably know them better than myself. But <laughs> uh, they're getting a long time away from me, some of them. So I'll try yeah. and remember. <laughs> Actually, when I was thinking that, I was like, do you know them better though? Because there's probably so many that you're just like, oh, I did that, didn't I? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like it's like life. You remember highlights, you remember snippets, remember things that really mattered, and you tend to dwell on the things that disappointed you. You try yeah. to forget them, but yeah, so it's funny what you remember. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like I always hear that they say you don't remember the good bits as much as you remember the bad bits. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. Especially if you're a competitive person because the goals you achieve are really nice and they keep you going and they, they make those sessions a lot easier. But it's the ones that really hurt that stand out the most yeah. because they, they're tough. They're a tough pill to swallow and it's just um, losses uh, sometimes those ones that mean that you don't sleep at night, but they're the ones that also drive you to better things. Yeah. So are you, would you say you are a very determined person? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've got kids too. So it's one of those things where, I mean, my parents often say you're just born competitive. Like you, I, I don't know if you can teach competitiveness. A lot of it's innate. And um, I was very competitive, determined and driven. It was a natural part of who I am, still is, but I'm able to at least step back and be a bit more relaxed with it. But when I was at the height of my competing, yeah, I was a completely different person when I was out on the track. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I guess you would need that to get you to the level that you were at. And that's interesting what you say about you don't know if it can be taught because I know I've heard my coach say we have some really talented juniors in our squad and she says like, they have the talent, but not the mindset, some of them. And then there's some yep. people who have the mindset, but unfortunately not the talent. Um, and that's the hard one. That's a really hard one. When you see a kid who's really driven and really motivated and desperately wants more, and they just don't quite have what it takes to get to that top level. Um, the beauty of track and field, though, is sometimes with an athlete like that, you can sort of divert them into a different event. And then they can find some more success at a different event. Like, you know, for youngsters who want to be the fastest 100-metre runner in the world, um, you know, they could start out as being a 100-metre runner and then realise, similar to like a Steve Hooker, that they're not quite fast enough to be an elite sprinter. But, hey, he put a pole in his hand and look what he could do. He's an yeah. Olympic champion. Yeah. No, that's and, exactly- and another one was Elisa Campbell, the aerial skier. She loved athletics. That was her first love. She wanted to be an Olympian. Um, but she was never going to make it in track and field. And she then she was good at gymnastics and then she found aerial skiing, Olympic gold medal, you know. So sometimes yeah. those ones who are really driven can just find a way. Yeah, no, I really like that you said that. Something my coach always says to us is like if you can't, like if you say you run 400s and you're just not getting quicker, you can always step out in distance if you have that, mm-hmm. some some type of talent there. So I guess if you can... Yeah. If you have that mindset, then there's always the marathon. Yep. Well, the thing is you can move around. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of athletes that are born with so much talent that don't utilise their full potential. For somebody, for me personally, if I'm watching and sitting back, the athletes that I admire the most are the ones who are the determined and tough ones and they leave no stone unturned and they give everything that they've got and they put their heart and soul into whatever they put their, you know, whatever goal they've got. doesn't necessarily have to be the Olympic goal, but there's people I've been on teams with that haven't won the medal that I've been really impressed with. And so that's just, um, I think as an athlete, a young athlete coming through, all you can do is your best. And that at the end of the day for a coach is enough. Yeah. 
No, for sure. I think it's, it's all about what you put in, not the outcome, I guess, at the end of the day. So what was your event or events and your most memorable just I know your event but so the listeners can know <laughs> yeah um, it's okay I did not expect everybody to know yeah. that it's such a specific thing track and field and it's a yeah you know, it's a audience and I and I get that so for me my events were the 400 meters and 800 meters I started out as a sprinter and gradually moved out in distance um, my most memorable moment is very easy. It was the world indoor title in 2008 of Valencia. I wasn't meant to win it, um, but I beat some of the best athletes of all time in the 800 metres and it was just wonderful to be able to stand on top of that podium for that one day and feel like I had achieved my ultimate goal. That's amazing. And I guess as well, being from Australia, you would have had less experience with that indoor track. <laughs> yeah, but bizarrely enough, it suited me because... I was a pure sprinter and I only just made 800 metres. 800s really hurt me. The yeah. training killed everything about it. So um, for me, the 200 metre track where you had to get out fast and you had to really utilise your pace to be able to pass people and to, you needed some strength on your bones to be able to hold people off and be rough and physical, it suited me. So I really liked the indoor track. It was unfortunate that we didn't get to do more of it being from Australia, but you know what, I I love being Australian, so I wouldn't change exactly, it. Yeah. I, love, I love our outdoor season. Me and too. I, I, I love the summer, so I'm yeah. I'm okay with it. But, yeah, no, it suited me the indoor track. So you started with um, 100, 200. I think I saw your first national title was in the sprints. Mm-hmm. What made you end up becoming going into 800? I know you were super young when you did sprints. Yeah. Um, so, you know, because I never did little laps. I was a bit of a skateboarder more as a kid and I did oh, every Oh, wow, a skating girl. <laughs> <laughs> Which back then it was kind of rare. Like these days skating's normal. But um, I grew up with boys and so I loved kicking the footy and um, I just, I played every sport and I was fast. I was naturally fast. My dad was at the Mexico City Olympics for 100 metres and I just obviously had some of his genetics. Um, talents. Yeah, <laughs> genetics. My I'm surprised that, yeah, I saw that too. I, I'm actually surprised that you said you didn't do little athletes because I thought your like having elite athletes as parents would have been what put uh, you in the sport. I think sometimes when you have elite parents, they stand back a little bit more because they achieved in the sport and they're happy for the kids to just go out there and do what they do, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, my kids don't do cricket or athletics yet. They do every other sport. You, know? <laughs> you just let them go and I think with me, athletics was one of those things I found in school because you have your zones, your districts. Yeah, and, and you were good, I was at, good it. at it. Naturally. Yeah, and when you're good at something, you really like it. So yeah, exactly. I used to beat the boys in primary school, and my teacher used to handicap races, and I used to chase them down, and I thought it was brilliant. So um, yeah, no, I started at hundreds and two hundreds. Um, and to be honest with you, I possibly, I probably, in all honesty, could have kept being a two hundred meter runner at an elite level. Um, you know, I broke 24 seconds for the first time at 15 and um, crazy. and that was off two sessions a week of just speed. So I wasn't really training that hard. And um, I think then I ran a 400 and I wanted to go to the World Juniors in 1994 and my coach said he thought I'd make the 400 metres and I think I qualified in the 100, 200 as well. But I ran a 400 and broke my PB by two seconds and ran 52.9 at 15, which put me into the senior team before I even made the junior team. So um, I think the writing was on the wall that I'd end up being a 400 metre run just with my build and the way that I ran. Yeah. And 
when I was older, I was training with, I had a few lean years, which is a long story, but when I got a bit older, the Nationals were coming up in 1998 and I loved winning. I really loved winning. <laughs> and I knew that Freeman was around. I think everybody knows who she is and she's yes. pretty hard to beat 400. <laughs> and so I decided that I want to win the national title. So I'm not going to win it if I run the 400. I'll run the 800. And my coach at the time, who was Freeman's coach, Peter Fortune, was like, we haven't done any 800 training. He's like, I know I can win it. And so in about three months, I went to the Nationals and won it. So then that kind of forced my hand. That's very interesting. So basically one of the main reasons you went into eights then was purely because Kathy Freeman was doing fours. So you were like, well, yep. I want to win. So yep. that's funny. And I was only young. Like I could have got better at the 400. I think if you, it's the only regret I have, I would have loved to stay with 400s to see how fast I could have gone. Cause I think I could have been a lot faster if I'd stayed with them. And I was okay at 400, but I think I could have been much better. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's done. And yeah. it was, I, I enjoyed my journey over the 800. So oh, definitely. Was, yeah. I guess if you went into fours and you wouldn't have done what you did with eight. So there's like pros yeah. and cons, but and that I is... like 800 runners. They're tough, you know, yeah. like you get this real camaraderie and you've got this mutual respect of each other. There's something about the middle distance group that I, I feel like I was a bit of a pretender. Like I wasn't the person who purely belonged in there. Cause I really do feel like my heart is more in the sprints group. Yeah. But I loved being a part of the middle distance group because I felt like there was just natural respect from being an 800 meter runner. Cause yeah. you're either crazy or you're just really good with pain and happy to push yourself through it. So yeah, that's something I really admire about distance runners um, yeah. in my squad. It's not like super elite. They're mainly young, but there's quite a few good 800 kids. The sprinters in the group who complain about running anything further than 200. And then there's the distance runners who are doing like repeat 600s and everyone's just like, these, Ugh. these kids are crazy. They just, yeah, they just, yeah. It's kind of special that they have that like yeah. ability to, as you said, okay. like, yeah, yeah that, exactly. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I admire that you like liked 800s for that reason as well. Yeah. Um, and I agree, like with your raw speed so young, you probably would have done a quicker 400 which would have been interesting to see but no regrets like no point having regrets no no. I mean Catherine was just amazing I just hadn't worked out when I was 19 how amazing she was probably shouldn't have judged my decision on which event to do off yeah I wasn't gonna beat her yeah (laughs) she's a superstar yeah um on that topic being on teams so young did you have any I guess your idols potentially were people that you were on teams with as a young athlete Um, so like I said I wasn't into track and field at a young age I love the Olympics and I love sport in general so when I was growing up my heroes came from AFL like I backed for Hawthorne and I loved Dermot Burton and Jason Dunstall who were big in the 80s and um so I didn't really tend to look at athletics heroes my my mum and dad were people I looked up to because I knew that they were good at sport. Um, I found out through people telling me they weren't actually parents that spoke about what they did. So it wasn't readily delivered to me that they were that good until people actually told me as I started to grow up. Um, I guess like everybody, I watched the Olympics in the 80s and I loved people like Daley Thompson and Sebastian Cole and Carl Lewis. And and, um, yeah, I I, I thought that, uh, I hate to admit it, but I liked Flojo as well. (laughs) when you're a kid you're impressionable and the sprint where the events were at yeah Um, and she was pretty fashionable as well so oh my goodness yes yeah she was out there and and for Australians I I used to go training on Sundays and 
I used to see Debbie Flintoff King training. And so I saw her train and how hard she worked leading into those Olympics. So for me, I looked up to her. And then if you ask me now who my favourite athlete of all time was, I'd have to say Freeman because I just find her remarkable for the way she was able to run so beautifully. Like she had that natural technique, but she was also just an amazing person often. And I really admire that. Yeah. I like that. That's, she's probably my favorite athlete that I look up to. And I didn't even see her ever compete because she'd retired by the time I was able to. Yeah. I know. I know. I can't believe that she won that Olympics. I know. So yeah, it's phenomenal at how. She's so profound still. Yeah. Yes. I mean, even kids who weren't born when she ran still know who she is. And, and she's not the person who puts herself out there. She shies from the line. Yeah. Everybody's in awe of her. And I love that they are because she's just a remarkable Australian and human being. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so we've kind of touched on this already, but what is one thing that you love about your sport? Um, so I, I love competing. I, it's just who I was about. And I love it when people say the social aspects of it and the representing their country. I love all of that as well. But for me, it was just that pure love of the adrenaline of trying to win and competing and crossing that line when you did nail a race and you had won. I just, I loved everything about that feeling fit, the training that we had to do, even though it was tough, pushing your mind and body to, um, you know, you set a goal and achieving it. But, yeah, so for me it was definitely the competition side. And I know that now because it's what I miss the most. Yeah. So any do you, have you ever considered having a crack at Masters? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't do little apps and I'm not going to do Masters. I'm happy in the middle just being where I was. And I just being an Olympian, just, the, just that, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I struggle personally. I love the Masters because I think it's brilliant that people can find their place in our sport and there's, there's something on offer for everybody. But for me, because I am so competitive, seeing slow time would really do my head in. Oh, so I can imagine. I wasn't as fast as yeah. I had Because in my head, I still believe I'm capable of sub two minutes and 51 second 400s. And as soon as I set, uh, set, set out into the track, and I realized that I'm not because the track's unforgiving. The clock never lies. I wouldn't be very happy. I'm not, yeah. I, I like sitting on this side of the fence. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I still- yeah. I can imagine like getting out there and just your body not being able to do what it used to do. It would yeah. be so like aggravating. It takes so much work yeah. to be able to do what, we used to, what I used to do. And I know how hard everybody trains at every level. Like if you want to be an athlete, like there's a lot of training that goes into it for not a whole heap of reward. So yeah. I have so much respect for anyone who takes the track in track and field because it's tough. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm happy. I'm happy watching That's, you guys. Yeah. I really enjoy watching you guys coming through and the next next um, generation, and I love cheering and supporting for our Australian athletes. It's funny because sometimes you see a lot of athletes step away from the track and you can almost sense their bitterness at um, people making teams that maybe weren't as good. But I I don't understand that. I love seeing an athlete make a team. I would select the biggest team possible if we could. And I think it's brilliant. Even if an athlete goes over there and they give 100% and they give you their PB and perhaps they don't make the next round, but they've done as well as they can. They've had that opportunity and they're able to go back home, train harder and improve. Um, I, I love seeing our athletes do well. That's one thing I really do enjoy. I love that. And I love that you do stay in the sport, like you uh, at nationals, like giving out the medals and doing the commentating. I think it's really nice to see like some of the greatest athletes doing that rather than 
as you said before, like not being happy yeah. with less competitive times. I think I think for somebody who wouldn't like, you know, there's a lot of young people who wouldn't understand why a lot of the athletes stay in the sport. There's been a lot of politics. I think what we need to change is the culture in our sport so that we manage to hold on to our ex-athletes because having been on teams in 1994 with, you know, people who were around in the 80s, you know, and then for people who are still competing, I've, I've um, seen them come through. I think the culture needs to change a little bit and we're a little bit more like a family so that people yeah. do want to come back and stay. I'm just really hard to get rid of. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so getting into some of the uh, deeper questions, yep. being a female at the highest level in sport, what mm-hmm. are some of the challenges that came with that? <sighs> There's a lot of challenges. Um, the world wasn't the same as it is now in terms of um, how females are now allowed to speak their mind if they have an opinion a lot more freely. Um, I found being an athlete that was quite vocal in terms of if I felt like something wasn't right or I just, you know, said what I thought, you you, you were treated a bit differently um, back when I was competing. So I found that part quite difficult to deal with. And because we had a Sydney Olympics coming up, um, I was quite happy with being in the background. But as soon as the Sydney Olympics happened and because Freeman was competing, a lot of our athletes all of a sudden were also um, in the news a lot more than they would have been in the past. So I found that quite confronting being a female, some of the things that you'd say and then would get changed into yeah. different wording in a paper. And um, I had, so I, I when I was looking, sorry, when I was having a no just quick look at your background, I saw some like things that were like, on your Wikipedia, it has like controversy, yes. and there was oh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look it up; it's oh, not yeah. bad at all. But <laughs> it was just like yeah. one of the things that made me angry because it was definitely quite sexist. Um, just backlash about a magazine photo shoot. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. But that um, was the story of my life. Like in terms yeah. of, so when you're 15 years old and you're on the, I mean, I was on the front page of the paper at 10 because I did a photo yeah. shoot with Tough King. Um, holding her Olympic medal and um, you know and then at 15 and so it was it kind of grew up in a different way but for me I was so protected it didn't feel different to me because I didn't read the paper I wouldn't have known I didn't yeah. really care less um, and my family was so down to earth and would just rib me if I got too big for my boots and, <laughs> but it was hard it was hard you learn you learn that you couldn't say certain things. And I, I, I learned as I went along and there's things that I would look back on and regret that I did in my career, not badly, but just things I may have said and I probably could have handled better. But I think at the end of the day, when you're, you know, 10 and you're coming through, <laughs> you know, you do change and you do yeah. always do and say the right thing. But um, I think being a female was difficult for me mainly because I didn't have the stereotypical figure of a teenage elite athlete. And so that for me was probably the hardest bit about being a female going through the track and field world because it took me a little while to find my confidence and be proud of being the person I was and the athlete I was in the body that I was in. And it happens to so many athletes, um, but it's because you're impressionable when you're in those teenage years. And if you are very competitive, your goal is only on the end result. And sometimes you look at the wrong people for advice when you're so focused on that end result being elite. Um, And as a teenager being impressionable, sometimes I wish that I could have the, you know, the mindset that I've got now back then, but it's hard because you've got to learn. And that's one thing I would say to any youngster coming through. 
Surround yourself with people who are going to give you genuine advice. And by genuine, I mean advice that is genuinely best for you. Not what they think is best for, the, for you or what they think everybody else has done and will suit you, and, um, but surround yourself with those genuine people that are going to really have your back and they're going to give you the advice that's going to actually be good for you in the long run. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I think that's why it's important to have a coach who is like cares more about you as a person and an athlete rather than if you're running a good time. Mm-hmm. And going on what you said about dealing with body image struggles, I wanted to get into this a little bit because that's something I talk about a lot. I think, mm-hmm. right, I think obviously it's always been something that people have experienced, but even now with social media, it's even more I guess like problematic because people see the, as you said, ideal body type for their event, for example, and there's this stereotyping of you look like a 800 runner, so you should do 800s or whatever the event is. But really like you, whatever your healthiest body is for you is what you're going to compete best at. So if you're not super lean when, or for example, if you're like not naturally super lean, but you are healthiest at a bit less leaner weight. That means you're going to compete better at being less lean. Cause if you got mm-hmm. super lean, you're not going to be healthy for you. And yeah, but everybody's lean is very different. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I went to the AAS on one of their camps that they had. And I, I'll never forget the biomechanist said to me before I got my skin folds done. And I don't like skin folds. My coach, my coaches as a senior never needed to take skin folds of me because who cared? Like, you know, yeah, once no, I got I... to my brother coaching me and seven daily overseas, they didn't want my skin folds because they didn't yeah. tell me how fast I was. Exactly. You know? No, yeah. Um, but they were so into it back in the 90s and I got there and the guy said to me, I will be heavier than the other girls. Like I'll have more skin fold measurements because the other girls who were getting measured at the same time were distance runners. Well, lo and behold, I was the lowest skin folds. I wasn't the skinniest, but I was the lowest. And the reason behind that was because a lot of it's genetic. I have a dad who's a sprinter and my mum who's a high jumper. So even if I look like I'm heavier sometimes, I was actually quite lean naturally. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like making us focus on our weight and on how much we are on the scales, it doesn't make you a better athlete. My coach was my brother when I was older. And I remember when I got to him, I, I wasn't in great shape I was a little bit overweight and blind Freddie could tell that for athletics it's an unforgiving sport I looked in the mirror and I knew I was heavy my timing was out a little bit and I said to him how am I going to lose this and he just said to me you do the right things often enough and you eat well so you do the sessions that I'm giving you and you eat well your body will find where it's meant to be and then you will run fast again and it's true because my my body didn't need to know exactly what weight I was or what my skin folds were it just needed to do the training and eat well and it would find my perfect me. Yeah. But everybody's perfect me is so super different. And that's the best thing about women's track and field. If you And men's as well. If you look across the fields at an Olympic Games, it's never one size fits all. Never. I ran in the 800 metres and there were girls who were so strong and muscly and tall and skinny and short and, and heavier. And they all somehow managed to run as well as they could with, you know, with what they had. It just, I I loved that about our sport, that it wasn't one size fits all. It was about that, you know, talent and the training and, and, and their mindsets of how they went about it. But everyone was so super different on that start line. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I agree that I just think there's no 
point in skin folds. Like if I was an elite coach, I would say if your times are fast and you're doing well, then what's the point of taking skin folds? It's not going to make a difference. And as you said, you should be able to tell. Yeah. Watching your athlete, you should be able to tell what they need to fix it. You know, you should be able to have those conversations with them and sort of say, just make sure you eat well. And then it's up to the athlete if they want to make that next step to be an elite athlete. Yeah. I tell you, there's so much danger around the way a coach delivers a message, the way a biomechanist delivers a message, the way a family member says anything. And it could be so innocent, but it's sometimes when you're an athlete and you so want to win, any little thing that throws you off and a bad result, you might latch onto some negative comment and then really use that driven nature that you've got and put it into the wrong areas. And and diet is one of those things that's so dangerous with teenage girls and boys, I've learned lately, um, because you can really do serious damage to your health. You won't enjoy your sport and you will not get the results that you're after. Yeah, no, I completely agree. This is something that I've experienced myself. I've I had an injury when I, I'm not at your level at all, obviously, but I'm only started the sport quite late. And when I was in year 12, that was the last time I raced at nationals. And then I had an injury and I got so just in such a bad mindset and latched onto it. Like, as you said, latched onto that just obsession with being lean. And I haven't had a period since then and haven't run fast since then. It's, it was just like, as soon as I got unhealthy, my, I couldn't run fast anymore. So I really appreciate that you're saying, you know, it's like being healthy and everyone's body type for them is what's, yeah. But you don't know what level you could be at. You could be even better than me. You just don't know until until you give yourself every opportunity to be elite, you know. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, when you retire from track and field, what you want to be able to say is I gave everything and that result was my best. I feel like I never nailed an 800 so that I had a PB that was probably the best time that I could have. Um, Does that mean that I'm a better athlete than somebody actually who can say, I reckon that was the race of my life. That was the best PB I could have ever got. I could have never run any faster than that, you know? So everyone's level is really different and you don't know what level you're going to get to. If you're willing to put the effort into the training, you need to make that decision to be willing to put your effort into your health and your health is so much more important than anything else, you know? And I think yeah, that definitely. we do make that mistake of, of thinking that elite results will come if I look like an elite athlete. I can assure you that there, I've won national titles within a, I reckon a 4K kilogram weight range, you know? And yeah, there were times where I was fitter and there were times where I was faster but I was still able to do well at different weight ranges as long as I was healthy. Your body finds where it's meant to be. But, um, you know, there's more to life than just athletics and there's more to life than just trying to tick those goals. I think if you don't have your health, that's when you have to take a step back and go, okay, you know what, I'm really not enjoying this because I, I'm not looking after myself the way I should and my health is suggesting, you know, I'm not getting my period. There's things that are suggesting me that are alarm bell, you know, should be yeah. that I'm not healthy enough to be putting my body through the grueling training that is required to be an athlete and it's hard I reckon the best athletes are those ones who can look in the mirror and actually be honest with themselves the whole way through their career yep that was crap why was it crap because this 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 yeah actually I'm not eating well at the moment I'm cheating a little bit on myself so you know I probably could be better yeah the ones that uh, yeah aren't in denial with themselves and are able to just give themselves criticism Self-criticism's yeah. good. Like, oh, yeah. 
nobody's perfect. Even the people who win the races aren't perfect. Yeah. Going into what you were saying about having to realize like there's things outside of athletics, what are some things that you enjoy besides athletics? Like when you were at, when you were at that elite, elite level and mm-hmm. how did you keep like mentally happy and balanced during that time? Yeah. You know, I think as a person, you evolve if you, I mean, I did athletics for such an incredibly long time from the age of 15 when I first made my team to the age of 34 when I won my last national title. So that's a really big time of your life. 20 years in this sport. Yeah. (laughs) You change a lot. So the things that I did changed as well. I I guess when I was really elite, I probably chose things were a bit more suited to that elite lifestyle. Like, you know, I would go to the movies. I would love hanging out with my friends. A lot of my friends were outside of the sport. You know, you'd just go out for dinner. You, you'd have them round to your house and just watch TV. I love sports. So, you know, I'd always go watch the footy or the cricket or whatever was, you know, on offer. But most of the stuff that I did as an elite athlete probably didn't take away from a session or a training that I had to participate in. Yeah. Um, you know. um, but, you know, when I was a teenager, I think it's so important to do the sports at your school, hang out with your friends and never miss out on that lifestyle that, you know, that you enjoy as a school kid. I I love sport in that it it meant that I didn't have to go to parties or feel like I needed to try fit in peer groups. Like oh, I, I agree. I always accepted that I was a sports person and they loved that I was a sports person and they supported me. Um, I learned as I went along that um you set yourself up with a really strong team around you. And even if they're not the team that's going to put you out on the track, it's just the team who's going to pick you up after a bad race so that you can just go have ice cream with them (laughs) and they cheer you up with stories. Um, All of that was really important to me. Um, But, you know, I, I, one of my favorite things is just walking my dog. So really laid back things like, you know, coffee with family. Like I just barbecues at my mum and dad's house, like little things I enjoyed. And so, you know, I, probably, I didn't skateboard as much while I was yeah. athlete, so that was probably something that I put to the side. Yeah, but well, that yeah, all sounds so much you can do. Yeah, no, that all sounds so nice, and it's nice to for people to think, oh, well, just because you're an Olympian doesn't mean you're not a human. Like you like to do human things. Yeah. You have the same mm-hmm. things that make you happy. Yeah. Oh, and the elite athletes over on the circuit are awesome. So you know, some of the things that you like to do, they love to do. So you just you'd hang out together, you know. So. You make lots of really good friends in the sport and yeah. I think they're like-minded and it's one of the most wonderful things that you take away from the sport is the friendships that you end up with, the mutual respect you have for each other. Yeah, there's so many good things that come out of it. It's a Sports, just that's why you love it. It's beautiful, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think a lot of people compare our sport to, you know, I've had elite footballers say to me, why do you do it if you don't get paid? And I'm like, well... I get to choose my coach. I feel like I'm in charge of my destiny a lot more than a team sport footballer or cricketer is. You know, I travelled the world. I represented my country at the Olympic Games. I made friends from people all around the globe that I still keep in contact with. And, you know, I feel like it's one of those things where it's not always about the money. It's, it's about the experiences that you can take away from a sport. And track and field has given me the most wonderful experiences. Yes, there's been some things that really hurt and were hard. But that still helps you grow as a person and there's still experiences that you can call on in times of, you know, that you need to in other aspects of your life. So for me, 
if you if you said to me, okay, there's now AFL women's football, there's cricket, there's all these other sports on offer, and you know, I was quite sporty. I probably could have played a, a number of different sports. I'd still say, hands down, every time I will choose track and field because it's just a wonderful sport to have been a part of. Yeah, and money doesn't buy happiness. If your favorite thing in the world is track and field, then mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, you'd probably pay to do it rather than get paid to do it. But we can work, you know, and I think that's a wonderful aspect of it. We can study and we can work. And then when we retire from the sport, we can then immerse ourselves into that phase of our life that we were still co-working on while we were being elite athletes. So there's a lot to love about track and field. Whereas if you're in a team sport like footy and cricket, sometimes you come to the end of their careers and they're like, okay, I don't get to see my teammates anymore. It's not as structured as it was before. So, yeah, you don't make as much money as other sports, but... I think you can come out of it in a better position still. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I do see a lot of the current elite athletes we have posting on their Instagram, like they're studying and they have exams. Like, yeah, I've seen like Morgan Mitchell posting like uh, that she's doing some exams and I'm like, that's really cool. Like they study things outside of their sport. So they do have other parts of their life. And I guess they're they're not going to be Olympians for 30 years so what are they going to do when they're 50 years old yeah yeah and you know our team captains like Steve Solomon Genevieve Gregson um, they're wonderful role models absolutely wonderful role models I mean Steve has a job he works as well as you know he's been an Olympic finalist at the age of 18 and and Jen's just doing great things she's so supportive of the rest of the athletic community and everything she posts is so positive and um, you know, I think they're both really relatable people and I think they're great, great uh, people for our younger generation of track and field to look up to. Yeah. And for yourself, when you were, say, in your 20s, in the mid- middle of your career, were you, did you have like on and off times that you were full-time athlete and then other times you would be working? How was that for you? I worked and I trained and raced the whole way through. The only time I couldn't work or, or, uh, was when I was in Europe. I spent a lot of time in Europe in the middle of the year and then I had English coaches for um, three or four years of my career as well. So that was the main period where I couldn't work and that was pretty tough. But um, other than that, you know, I studied at uni full time and then I, um, I worked as well. And you just choose jobs that are flexible. And there's so many people out there that really um, are willing to help out an elite athlete because they understand the hardships, but they also respect how self-motivated and hardworking elite athletes can be. Yeah. So you find your niche and you find good people and you can always find somewhere where you can work as well as be, um, you know, get the training in and get enough rest so that you are ready for the next session and the races that are going to come up. People, people do admire what track and field athletes and other Olympic sport athletes um, do to try and be successful. And they, they are willing to help out. There's always people out there that are willing to help out with, with jobs. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, uni, uni, unis also help out a lot as well. If, you know, you're struggling to, um, do assignments they often can do it you can do it part-time and there's always a way you know what I mean I think that yeah. was the lesson I learned when I was at uni first time when I went to one lecturer and I said oh I'm really struggling to get these courses in well I've got to go overseas and they said well you'd have to choose between uni and um, athletics I just went past them to the next person and then it was fine you know yeah. so there'll be roadblocks but there's always a way around them yeah <laughs> no I like that anything in life there's always a way around and yeah 
in so in what you were just saying um, about balancing everything, I guess also that brings me to a question I wanted to ask about your training sessions. So it's, I mean, it shows the goes to show when you were so young and you said you were only doing two days a week and yet winning nationals um, that obviously you have a lot of talent, but I know there's like this whole kind of, I don't want to say myth because volume is important to a t- it, to an extent, but I feel like there's a lot of comparing of like how much volume do other people do? And I'm lucky because my coach is a definitely a quality over quantity type of coach and she's quite young. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of her. My coach is Jacinta Doyle. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's I had. Know Jacinta. I know Jacinta. She was a good sprinter. Yeah. So um, yeah, we talk a lot about like know, just coaches. Her husband, is she married? Yeah, she's married to Kurt Mulcahy. Yeah, no, so. I know. He was oh, awesome yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, they, they've got three now. They just had the third oh, recently. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so when I started with her, she was. She, they were both still training like at like full time and then I think they unexpectedly got pregnant so they um, decided to she go. She was running good 400s before that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were both trying to have a crack at like a relay for Rio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, they went down the coaching side because of the um, like being able to balance a family. Um, I love that they're coaching. They will be wonderful coaches, and I think that's yeah. brilliant to see some young people coming through that have great knowledge, but are also able to tap into being a little bit closer to the next generation. I think oh, definitely. That's um, like she's one of my best friends, and we have so many convos. And she said to me before, like she's had a little bit of like. Not, I don't want to say the word hate, but I can't think of a better word. Just some backlash, I guess, from um, older coaches sometimes who mm-hmm. like kind of own the space. And yep. yeah, and it's toxic. Yeah, it's a toxic world. So I'm really quite strong about this one in Australia. Um, the coaching world in um, athletics Australian sort of circles, it's it's too it's too toxic. We need to open it up a little more. There's not enough. Um, sharing of ideas there's not enough young coaches coming through because you're right the older coaches haven't shared enough um down it's not all of them there are some wonderful older coaches that share brilliantly but what we need to do is we need to be blooding new coaches because at the end of the day it's the coaches who will get our athletes through um to that next level i have no doubt that the reason why i was able to compete so long was because of every single one of the coaches that i had starting from my first coach neville silito and ending with my brother who finished off um who did the last half of my career justin so coaches are so super important and i don't think we put anywhere near enough time and effort into that space in our sport yeah no i agree and justina said to me um there's a lot of the old school thinking with the older coaches that like volume, volume, volume. And she's mm-hmm. trying to learn. I've noticed since I've been with her for like five years or so that she's like not stuck to one coaching philosophy. She tries new things out because she's trying to learn and be the best coach she can be. But she's awesome. definitely um, a coach that's very quality over quantity. And yep. so what was your training like in terms of like volume throughout the week and mm-hmm. Um, as well, like while you're thinking about that, what was like one of your hardest or a training session that gives you PTSD to this day? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's funny because, and I love quality over quantity. It works brilliantly for my type of athlete. And I 100% understand that some athletes need volume and some athletes, you know, that's the beauty of 
um, you know, training for 800s is so is one of those events where I could talk to one of the girls who was, you know, at the Olympics and her and my training could be so different. And I think that's where coaches need to be really adaptable because, you know, at the end of my career, I've trained with uh, Catherine Katzenavakis who had two national titles over 800 as well. And we had to do quite a lot of different stuff because we were different athletes. And so that's what makes Jacinta really good because she can recognise, okay, I'm going to have to adapt here because... I can't necessarily give the same program to every single athlete because they are so different. I was very much the um, quality over quantity. So the volume stuff wasn't for me. I tried it. I got slower. I could run 202 any day of the week and back it up five minutes later, but I couldn't go faster, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas, so my coach worked out that I had to really hover around that lactic sort of zone, which sucked because five out of my seven days of training, I would feel like spewing and then you do another rep, you know? So that stuff was my bread and butter. But I also love that stuff. So the sessions yeah. where you see the program, you're like, oh, I'm going to feel really sick though. But you're so proud when you finish that session. Exactly. Um, you know, anything like um, uh, I hated my, my least favourite session was anything that was um, kicked down. So, like, you know, you do 500, 400, no, 500, 300, 400 with two minutes between and you'd have to kick down the last 100 to a sub 15-second pace, um, you know, and then you'd have a little bit of a break and do that set again. And I hated that stuff. Um, I used to hate the session, session 600 metres, 30 seconds recovery, 200. Yeah, it was over quickly, but you'd have to hit that 600 at that 127, 128-minute mark. And that's quite fast. And the 30 seconds recovery goes like that and you get oh, a great start yeah. in the last 200 and you're absolutely on the ground. Yeah, dead. by the time you've pulled up from that 600, you've basically just go again. That sounds awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. horrible, horrible. Um, and then... Awful but also rewarding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of 200s, like, you know, like you'd do them in groups of four where you'd also change the pace as well and there'd be no recovery, like hardly any recovery. 300s. Um, but my, I think my least favourite session is the change down one. Um, and I also used to do a lot of reps on the beach where you'd run up steps across the top and then along the sand and then back sand up around. Hands, yeah. Oh, and I'm not yeah. a distance runner. So that's where I pack those, my, those that distance the sort of conditioning work. In, yeah. Where it was off the track and I didn't have to get my sprinter's mind around. That I was yeah. Like, but, oh, that was horrible. <laughs> I love that. But like speed endurance was was where I would probably focus most of my time. Yeah. And we do lots of plyometrics after the hills. So you did a hill session, you'd be absolutely tired and then you'd do bounding. And yeah, so it was really um, speed endurance, lactic focused our training. And that's what the 800 meters was for me. Yeah, no, I I really like that you say that every athlete's different and that was the, the type of athlete you are. And I can imagine that it would be given that you're so naturally fast and good over a short distance that you would be more of a speed base 800 runner um yeah so we focused on that sub 15 second hundred place it was rare that we plotted you know it was rare that we did things on the track that was slow and plotty because that stuff just made me slow yeah we, we did do it like there was there were sessions where we would do wind sprint sort of stuff around the track and you get to that point where you felt like you're plotting but as soon as I did that I, you had that element of okay you're dropping your hips you're going to get injured so yeah. yeah, we had to around things to make sure that we kept it at that speed endurance side because if I did start to plod, I got slower, I got flatter and it just um, I didn't have that same zip off the track and I wasn't yeah. as fast. 
And I do hear as well, like it's good to always never train slower than race pace. Um, mm. And I guess that's the type of athlete you are. And then there, there's the obviously the 800 runners who are more volume based and they'll do their two hour recovery jog yeah. every week or so. Um, so everyone is really different, which is really, it's really refreshing, I guess. It is. Um, and I bet you there's been heaps of coaches, especially with 800s that have just got it wrong. I think the thing I see a lot is when you see a talented female, if their junior coach pushes them too hard, that's where the biggest issue is in, in track and field. Um, and even with boys, I think it's just more for girls because of that bone density area and when they're yeah. going through puberty. But it's just one of those things where as a junior, less is more. If you're a coach and you're coaching a really talented junior, just be overly cautious. If it means that they don't win that national title, that's fine because seniors is where it's at and you want them to have a body that is capable of withstanding a lot of work when they're in their 20s, not be brittle and breaking down because you've overtrained them as juniors. Yeah, and as you said, like you're in the sport for 20 years, so if you don't win nationals when you're 16, that doesn't matter. You've got 20 more years to be winning nationals. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, did you have any going into some of your like racing, um, like actual races, did you have any superstitions or pre-race rituals that you like to do? No, my dad taught me young never to have superstitions because they could blow up in your face. And so, no, I didn't. Sometimes if I was overseas and I was missing family, like I used to wear one of the rings that my mum and my grandma had given me. So I might kiss them before a race if I remembered. But if I didn't, it didn't stress me out. So, no, I was not superstitious at all. And I think I was quite relaxed before a race in terms of that sort of stuff. If things didn't go right, I was able to find a different plan yeah. to make sure that it all, you know, worked out. I didn't do the same warm-up every time, you know, if I if I did one less drill or if I did more drills. I didn't have it written down to the specific way. Sometimes Justin would see me, that was my coach, if he saw me um, and he thought I needed bounds before I was racing because he felt like I needed a bit more zip, we'd do bounds in the warm-up, you know. So yeah. I like to do an acceleration before I race, like a really fast one. So and I'm talking like I was a 100-metre runner. I would do an acceleration before I, I ran just to get those legs really zippy so the first lap felt slow. Um, but, again, if I didn't do it, yeah, it was fine. Yeah. I've, I really like that you seem so grounded and just a mature athlete in the fact that you, you back yourself and you trusted yourself. You weren't, like, putting yeah. it on everything else around you going well. It was just you yourself being able to trust yourself regardless yeah. of, yeah, I relied on timing. When I was a kid, I used to watch my dad train. I could hear his feet off the ground. He was a sprinter and I always wanted to hear that sound. So these days people run a lot with music and I could warm up the warm up laps with a with music, but I would never go for a jog when I was a, you know, over my twenties without with headphones in, like, cause I needed to hear that sound off the track. And so sometimes when I was warming up, I could tell what I needed just cause I knew my body. Yeah. And um, I trusted it. I trusted my guys. Yeah, I love that. And um, say so when you said you always did a fast excel before you raced, did when you were racing, did the knowledge of that you were probably the quickest over a short distance, did you did you like remind yourself that like if it came to a kick at the end, you could out sprint anyone in your field? Oh, the kick at the end overseas was tough during the era I ran in because the era I ran in, which I know now, was was full of the hermaphrodite and the drug cheat era, and so. Yeah. My kick didn't really get, I didn't get to use it a lot because they were running, I mean, I remember one race in Paris where I ran too flat and I came last because the girl dropped a, um, uh, 
she was a DSD athlete, so she was an intersex athlete. She dropped a 40-second or something last 300. It was insane. She ran that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm off the back holding on. Where I did, what, what I got, got a lot of strength from my speed when I felt it before a warm-up was in that first lap tempo because the distance still scared me as a sprinter. 800s was a long way to sprint. Yeah. I was in the bell at 56 in some races. So if I had my speed up and my 400 was fast leading into a race, I felt confident that I could hit that 56 seconds at the bell and I'd at least finish. You know, I'd be strong enough to give a good fight and a good account of myself against those girls in the back end. And and that was just the era I ran at. I knew that we had to have speed to be able to be relaxed at 56, 56 seconds at the bell. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> now is, I'm saying it out loud. It was crazy. No, that is crazy. That is wild. Like the idea of, I always think, because people always say, oh, 400s is the hardest event. And I'm like, 800s mm-hmm. is because it's 400 twice and it's fast. Like it's fast. It's 56 seconds. Like to yeah, do that twice I, in a row, pretty much. Like anybody who says to me, because I think I can be a judge on it because I ran both the four and eight. Anyone who says to me that the 400 is harder than the 800, I always say to them, you haven't run through the bell fast enough in an 800 if you say that. Yeah. I like I remember one of the South Wales titles in the heat. I hit the bell at 56.71 and I looked at the clock and I thought, hmm, that's probably a little bit fast for a heat. <laughs> oh and it was, it was hard. I was trying for a time, but it was like, it was probably pretty fast on your own. Um, and now I see results come through where girls run 56 seconds for the 400. And I'm sort of like, that was really fast. No wonder it hurts so much because they just hurt. Like, the yeah, it was just the era that I ran in just the 800 was just crazy in that it was a sprint and it was who could hold on. Yeah. That must've been so, I guess, deflating to have to compete against people that you just knew you couldn't beat because obviously their testosterone is not going to be at the same level that you could ever compete with. Um, That is just unfortunate. And it's, you control the controllables. Exactly. And so what do you do? Not do the sport because the Russians are going to be there and you know they're cheating. No, you just go there and you can tell the control. Like you still love it just because, exactly. And obviously. It changed the way you ran heat. So say I was in Olympic Games in 08, I knew knew what was going on. My coach and I knew and we were like, what do we do? Yeah. I had to hit the bell at 57 seconds and make the race fast, whereas most people in a heat want to slow it down and do the kick down so you don't use as much energy. Yeah. The girls used to laugh after it. They'd say, oh, my God. Some would say, damn it, I got you in my heat, which meant that I'd make them fast. We ran 159 in our heat in um, Beijing Olympics, whereas others who were on the fringe, like me, trying to get through to the next round, they would love it because they knew that they'd be in a fast heat because I'd take all the work in the first lap. So it was just, you just had to work around it. And that was one thing I could control. I knew that if I got to a major, I wasn't afraid to hit the bell fast. And I was going to have to do that to make it through to the next round because I didn't have that, that, you know, that strength in the back end at that pace. So yeah. that's okay. It's what we had and it's, you know, I'm proud of looking back. It's probably one of the things I'm most proud of that I was brave enough to be able to go, all right, I'll be the bunny out the front. Let's go. Let's do this. That's the scary thing about eights as well. I guess you've done fours, you've done eights. Like eights is more tactical. You don't have your lane. It's scary. So did you ever miss like, like a 400 where you just got like, you didn't have to think about the, the tactics side of it as much? I was naturally a 400 meter runner. I definitely yeah. 
And the coach said to me, you're going to run a 400 this weekend rather than eight. I was high-fiving. <laughs> you know? But there's, I didn't get that same satisfaction when I finished a four as I did after the 800. Like it really took a lot for me to run an 800. I remember I used to say to my brother sometimes before going into the call room, will I make the distance? Like I was really nervous about the whole 800. For my whole career, every time I took the start line, I was nervous about it I don't think you could tell I think I was able to convince myself and others that I was I was fine and I was brave and I was going to attack it but I was always nervous for them because I knew how much they hurt me and I knew the way that I ran meant that they were going to hurt more than they would if I sat back and and kicked over the top but it's just it's it's just one of those things you know I chose to be an 800 meter runner at the end of the day and and pain comes with that it's the territory of 800 meter running so that's Crazy. I love hearing your insight. Um, I have two more questions. Oh, four more questions before I get onto some injury questions. Sorry to keep you for so long. Um, I thought I talked too much. I'll keep the questions. No, no, no. I like hearing everything you say. Um, This one's not a, uh, this is a short one, but your, did you have like a pre-race like snack or go-to pre-race meal? Like before you competed in the Olympics, what was your go-to? Jam on toast. I like jam on toast and even in the warm-up, sometimes I might even have something like a lolly or um, a chocolate, something small, because I really didn't like having my tummy full. So I didn't eat. I probably ate five, four or five hours before. And then as I warmed up, um, I probably had something just before warm-up. I had something that was sugary, which dietitians would probably disagree with, but it worked really well for me. I also had hydrolyte. Um, I sipped hydrolite when I first got to the track and before I started that warm-up just to stop some cramping because I had sometimes in if it was really hot, I had issues with cramping in the calves and stuff. So Yeah. yeah I, I like I that you said it was what worked for you because, I mean, everyone is like, oh, what is this going person? to a dietitian? I'm having sugar and chocolate just in a little <laughs> warm-up. But it always worked. Like I just – yeah. You know how sometimes they tell you to eat quite a lot in that, oh, I couldn't have a lot of water and I couldn't have a lot of food in my belly. Yeah. I, I felt sick enough as it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, With the nerves you would get as well, it'd be hard to stomach yeah. like enough yeah. to meet like, yeah. yeah. But no, I think a dietitian would say, obviously athletes eat healthy foods, but when it comes to racing, it's different because you need the, yeah. that energy. So the recovery food's more important. Yeah. yeah. I what think would, you can do more damage in the food you eat before if it doesn't suit your belly or your gut. It's the recovery food. You know, like I used to just have some sausage in with water or um, I didn't like to eat a lot because I was always so sick after yeah. it. Like, you know, a lot of times I just felt like, you know, so I used to put some sausage powder in with water sometimes or just have a handful of peanuts or, yeah, to get that salt in. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, and then I just wait until I felt a bit better and I'd just eat normally again. Interesting. Did you have a um, post-race celebration, like post-nationals celebration meal or treat that you used to do? See, I used to eat everything I liked anyway. So, you know, I had pizza. So pizza's probably one of my favourite foods, but I would have pizza when I was training or, you know, it doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Um, And I would eat, I love dark chocolate, and I would eat dark chocolate most days a little bit, and I'd have dessert every night. So there was nothing that I felt like I needed or craved. Um, so you know how you hear outrageous stories of people stacking on five or ten kilos after their event. That just yeah. never happened to me because it just didn't change much. I didn't crave anything after I finished, you know. I That's just so good that you were that possibly, balanced. Yeah. Like I possibly didn't eat. I lost weight after a meet because you didn't I didn't sit and make sure I ate. I yeah. just, you know, 
went and sightseed and just had yeah. a massive meal. Or, you know, I, I probably didn't eat enough after I stopped. Yeah. No, but I really like that you say you're pretty much balanced throughout all the time being an athlete. Yeah. You, so you didn't need have that need to do anything crazy like that. But I recognized early that I had that OCD way that if I did that, I'd probably think about it all the time and then it would become a problem. You know, exactly. so if I did yeah. chocolate, then I'd start thinking about chocolate yeah. and then I'd want chocolate and then I'd probably binge on chocolate. Yeah. Been. Whereas if I just had a little bit of chocolate, yeah. I never thought about <laughs> exactly and then it's it's not a big deal it's just like don't overthink it deal. and you're yep. training that much as it is like you need f- to fuel yeah. yourself and yeah 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 I just ate when I was hungry and my body tended to tell me and it still does what's right so yeah I'm lucky that, I- that I'm, I'm like it's so nice to talk to someone so in tune with their themselves and are very aware of it as yeah. well um, yeah athletics definitely helped in that you yeah have to be with your body yeah um, what's the biggest lesson that your sport has taught you? Um, the biggest lesson that the sport has taught me. Um, it's a hard one. I know there's probably not one biggest one. No, I thought one. about this one too because I, 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 think, I think I'm really quite different to the person I am when I take the track. I'm very, very different actually. Like I'm quite a relaxed, laid-back person. I like to think I am. No, you I'm are. I get that vibe from you. <laughs> and I love to have a joke like I always like to laugh like you know that's really important to me have a laugh and surround yourself with really happy like go lucky people but on the track I was probably the opposite I was I you know I was I could be intense and I you know I could you know I wanted to win and I liked competing I could still do it with a smile but I know that I was very driven um I I guess track and field then would have taught me the most would be how to be disciplined how to be self-driven, how to be goal-orientated and to also be forgiving of myself when things don't go to plan because it's very hard when you are goal-driven to forgive yourself when things go, don't go to plan. And it's it's a lesson that all of us need because life doesn't go to plan all the time and people will stuff you around at times and make you feel like crap, but you need to learn to be able to forgive yourself for not being perfect. And that's, I think, what I learned the best from athletics, those nights where I wouldn't sleep after a bad race. Um, I'm now able to have coping mechanisms where I'm like, okay, it didn't go well, Uh, you know, stay up a bit later, watch a movie, think about something else, go to bed. Like, you know, it's just there's a lot of things that you go through as an individual athlete where you're alone with your own thoughts and you have to work out coping mechanisms to deal with those thoughts when you're not happy with how how you are. Yeah, I think that's a really good one as well. And realising it's not the end of the world because, as you said, like it – yeah, I can imagine. I've got kids now. It's so not. It's yeah, just a sport. <laughs> I can Im- exactly. I can imagine in some of the circumstances you were in, being on those teams and with mm-hmm. potentially like getting on relay teams when you were really young. And if they're like, yeah, yeah, it might feel like that's all that matters in at that moment. But that's yeah. really nice to yeah. know after so long in the sport that you matured like that and had that you like grew from it like that. So. You have to, otherwise the sport will eat you alive. But life will eat you alive if you don't find coping mechanisms and you can't work out a way to look in the mirror and forgive yourself for your mistakes or to realise that, okay, you just weren't good enough. Well, maybe you should go into psychology after your athletics career. (laughs) I I feel like you'd be a good psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I'd get them leaving with a laughter. Yeah, (laughs) no, but it's great. Um, so I have two more questions. So, and then a couple of injury questions, but okay. that shouldn't be as long. Um, so 
if you could give girls one piece of advice um, who might compare themselves to, or even young boys as well, they compare themselves to other people, like other athletes, like how fast their progression is or what their body is like or their training volume, just comparing themselves in any way, what would your advice be? Well, I think it's like I said before, There's that's twofold. I think if they're young athletes, I would say less is more is a really important one. Um, the second one is always remember that not one size fits all and we don't all want to be the same. You've got to work out what works for you and go with it, you know, and it's trial and error a lot of the times with training. But the third one I find and I wish I had worked it out when I was younger would be that surrounding yourself with genuine people you know, really genuine people who have your back no matter what and are really going to give you good bits of advice that you need. Um, and, and sometimes those genuine people will tell you things that you don't want to hear but you actually need to hear it and it will not only make you a better athlete, it will make you a better person. And so I think that it took me a little while but by the time I got to my late 20s, which is a long time when you start at 15, I feel like the team around me was amazing. There is a reason why I won my world title in 2008 because it took me far too long to work out that those people you surround yourself with are super important. Athletics is an individual sport, um, everybody says, but it's really not. Oh, you no way, yeah. You successful if you've got a great team around you. And yeah. it's not just about the team who helps you on the track. It's also about that team that helps you personally you know, your partner, your friends, your family. And, and sometimes you may have people who don't actually get, you might have friends or family that don't get what you're trying to achieve. And so then you need to work that out and how to deal with them before races and after races, you know. And it's just, um, I was very fortunate that I had parents who obviously did understand it. Um, the friends I surrounded myself with by late 20s, 100% got it. And um, the partner was the most important one. Um, I met my husband late oh, 27 and I feel like he did sport an elite level, but he did it in a way that was very laid back and really suited me as well. Our styles clicked and he was just a really good sounding board. He told me to pull my head in when I needed to. And I did, <laughs> but he also told me that, you know, that I've got this when I needed to hear that encouragement. So I think that the people that you do have in your corner are vital to your journey that you're going to take in not only track and field, but life. And I think with athletics, what you want to do is you don't only want to come out of the sport having achieved the individual goals that you set out for yourself, um, but you also want to come away from it as a better person. And I feel like I didn't nail the individual goals that I wanted to achieve out of the sport, but I'm still proud of what I did achieve. But I feel like I definitely came out of it a better person. And so therefore that's a massive tick for me. Oh, I agree. Like at the end of the day, if you win the Olympics, but you're not this, you know, you don't have the mindset growth or the relationship with yourself that other athletes get, it doesn't seem to be as worthwhile throughout the lifetime. And that's interesting what you just said, the mindset growth, because you need to also grow as a person after that moment. So a lot of elite athletes achieve their goal, but they hold on to that goal and keep looking back. Once you've, once you've achieved your goals in athletics, if you do or you don't, then you need to leave it behind and then go on and keep achieving other things, whether it's having a happy family, whether it's, you know, being, you know, successful in business, whatever it is, you need to then move on and continually grow. Um, and that is what I've realised with track and field is that sometimes the success doesn't make you a happy person, 
So the growth that you have through the sport is really vital so that you can then leave the sport as a better person and then go on to other things and use those skills that you've learned through the sport in those other things that you're going to do. Whereas some people who've been highly successful in sport just can't leave it behind and they'll actually find that the next part of their life isn't anywhere near as good. Yeah, I've really heard a lot important. of yeah, I've heard a lot about a, a lot about athletes feeling lost and not being able to move on after retiring and it's really nice to talk to someone who's so cool and like like has so much about them other than that they were this great athlete. Like you're so much more than just being a great athlete. So oh, thank you. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but it's it's you know, I had good people around me that showed me, like my parents did this, but they showed me that yes, it's a part of your life, but there's so much more to life. Exactly. It's not life. you're not that's not all that you are, it's just part of who you are. Yeah. So yeah. I can watch the sport and still love watching the sport without yeah. going, Oh, I wish I was there. Now it yeah. takes time. You know, the first couple of years when I stopped, I was like, oh, I don't actually know who I am without the sport and the red yeah. regime. You know? But you find it and then it's just, it's wonderful. Life after athletics and watching back at other people achieving, it's, it's, it's brilliant. There's so much more to life than that little bubble of track and field. But then again, the bubble of track and field is wonderful too. Exactly. Um, so last question for this part, do you have a favorite quote or motto that you live by? Well, I always liked a day without laughter is a day wasted, but that's not really to do with track and field. That's okay. Um, I really like that one too. <laughs> I really like that one. Um, my coach always said to me, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I used that quite a lot when it was tough. My English teacher told me that in the HSC. <laughs> oh, that's true too. Yeah, I remember. So he was that like, goes for three hours that yeah. again. My God, I still remember it. <laughs> oh, it was like English and I was like about to cry because I was just stressing so much and I was like this is so much work and he was like well if it were easy everyone would do it and I was like true (laughs) (laughs) see it's 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 a really relatable comment to a lot of things but you know things that are tough are often hard so you know yeah if you want to be willing to go through that to achieve what you want then it's it's worth it it yeah that's why not everybody can achieve at certain things that you set yourself out to do. You put yourself out there and you have to be willing to accept that you could fail, but geez, isn't it better to try? Exactly. I love that. I always say like, what's like, if your worst fear is failing, then like, as if you wouldn't want to have a crack, like that's. And, yeah. I so, and the thing is for me, what a lot of people would understand when I'm watching athletics and I see the 800 meter runners come out of the track, I automatically love every single one of them because I know how hard it is just to get on the start line because it was difficult for me. And I think every time they run it, like even if they've come last, I've got so much respect for each and every one of them because it's a tough sport. You put yourself out there on the start line and you can tell who wins, you can tell who comes last. There's so much admiration for people who just have a go. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to move on to the injury questions now. So if you guys are interested in hearing that second podcast on Tamsin's experience or dealing with injury from an elite athlete or an Olympian's point of view, that will be coming very soon. So stay tuned. Otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was so great listening to Tamsin and having a conversation with such an amazing woman and athlete. I hope this was insightful for you guys. And I hope you guys liked the first podcast that was an interview podcast, not a solo episode. 
If you did like this podcast, feel free to leave a review on Apple Reviews. That helps support the podcast. You can also share it through your Instagram. The podcast platform is Emmy's Insight on Instagram. So definitely check it out. Give it a follow. And yeah, feel free to leave comments on any of the posts with feedback if you like the episode or any ideas that you would like to hear on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for your support. The podcast is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Lastly, I would just like to finish with a big thank you and shout out to Tamsin. She was a great person to interview and just talk to in general. She's a great role model and I hope you guys found her insightful as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you join me in the next episode. Bye.